0: Chapter 7 of Among the Great Masters of the Drama. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Phipps. Among the Great Masters of the Drama by Walter Rawlins. Mrs. Abington. And now the Muse on high her banner rears. Talia calls. And Abington appears. Yes, Abington. Too long we've been without her, with all the school of Garrick still about her. Coleman. Of all the intractable leading ladies who acted under Garrick's management, the capricious Mrs. Abington plagued him the most. John Thomas Smith says, she was not unlike the miller's mare, forever looking for a white stone to shy at. But however trying she might be to her manager, She was a favourite both on and off the stage and, although of very doubtful extraction and breeding, became a polished woman of fashion as well as the first comic actress of her day. In appearance, a bird of paradise and a behemoth would not differ much more than Mrs. Abington and Dr. Johnson, yet they were good friends, and the gruff but great philosopher was, like her, fond of fashionable folk. Boswell writing under date of 1775, says On Monday, March twenty seventh, I breakfasted with him, Johnson, at Mr. Strahan's. He told us that he was engaged to go that evening to Mrs. Abington's benefit. She was visiting some ladies whom I was visiting and begged that I would come to her benefit. I told her I could not hear, but she insisted so much on my coming that it would have been brutal to have refused her. This was a speech quite characteristical. He loved to bring forward his having been in the gay circles of life, and he was, perhaps, a little vain of the solicitations of this elegant and fashionable actress. He told us the play was to be The Hypocrite, altered from Gibber's non-jureur. I met him at Drury Lane Playhouse in the evening. Sir Joshua Reynolds, at Mrs. Abington's request, had promised to bring a body of wits to her benefit, and, having secured forty places in the front boxes, had done me the honour to put me in the group. Johnson sat on the seat directly behind me, and, as he could neither see nor hear at such a distance from the stage, he was wrapped up in grave abstraction, and seemed quite a cloud amidst all the sunshine of glitter and gaiety. I wondered at his patience in sitting out a play of five acts, And a farce of two. He said very little. A few days later, Boswell records I supped with him and some friends at a tavern. One of the company attempted, with too much forwardness, to rally him on his late appearance at the theatre, but had reason to repent of his temerity. Why, sir, did you go to Mrs. Abington's benefit? Did you see? No, sir. Did you hear? No, sir. Why then, sir, did you go? "'Because, sir, she is a favourite of the public, "'and when the public cares the thousandth part for you "'that it does for her, I will go to your benefit, too.' A very different man from Johnson, Horace Walpole, also admired Mrs. Abington, as can be seen from the following gallant invitation which he sent to her. Strawberry Hill, June 11, 1780 "'Madame, "'You may certainly always command me and my house. "'My common custom is to give a ticket for only four persons at a time, "'but it would be very insolent in me, when all laws are set at naught, "'to pretend to prescribe rules. "'At such times, there is a shadow of authority "'in setting the laws aside by the legislature itself, "'and, though I have no army to supply their place,' I declare Mrs. Abington may march through all my dominions at the head of as large a troop as she pleases. I do not say, as she can muster and command, for then I am sure my house would not hold them. The day, too, is at her own choice, and the master is her very obedient, humble servant, Horace Walpole. Walpole thought Lady Teasel, which part she created, to be Mrs. Abington's best effort. Reynolds painted her in this character, again as the comic muse, as Roxolana in The Sultan, this portrait he presented to Mrs. Abington, and as Miss Prue in Congreve's Love for Love, which latter picture is reproduced here. It shows Miss Prue in the scene where the rough sailor, Ben, makes love to her according to his father's commands. "'Come, mistress, will you please to sit down?' "'for when you stand stern at that "'and we shall never grapple together. "'Come, I'll haul a chair. "'There, and you please to sit, I'll sit by you. "'You need not sit so near one. "'If you have anything to say, I can hear you farther off. "'I aren't deaf.' "'Why, that's true, as you say. "'Nor I aren't dumb. "'I can be heard as far as another.' "'I'll heave off to please you,' sits father off. "'And we were a league asunder. "'I'd undertake to hold discourse with you, "'and twere not a main high wind indeed, "'and full in my teeth. "'Look you, forsooth, I am, as it were, "'bound for the land of matrimony. 'Tis a voyage, you see, that was none of my seeking. "'I was commanded by father, and if you like of it, Mayhap I may steer into your harbour. How you say, mistress? The shorter the thing is that if you like me and I like you, we may chance to swing in a hammock together. I don't know what to say to you, nor I don't care to speak with you at all. No, oh, I'm sorry for that, but pray, why are you so scornful? As long as one must not speak one's mind, "'one had better not speak at all, I think, "'and truly I won't tell a lie for the matter.' "'Nay, you say true in that. "'Tis but a folly to lie, "'for to speak one thing and to think just the contrary way "'is, as it were, to look one way and row another. "'Now, for my part, you see, "'I'm for carrying things above board. "'I'm not for keeping anything under hatches.' "'so that if you bent as willing as I, "'say so God's name, there's no harm done. "'Mayhap you be shamefaced. "'Some maidens, though they love a man well enough, "'yet they don't care to tell on Solster's face. "'Why, if that's the case, why, silence gives consent. "'But I'm sure it is not so, "'for I'll speak sooner than you should believe that, "'and I'll speak truth, "'though one should always tell a lie to a man.' and I don't care. Let my father do what he will. I'm too big to be whipped, so I'll tell you plainly. I don't like you, nor love you at all, nor never will. That's more. So there's your answer for you, and don't trouble me no more, you ugly thing. End of chapter seven.